Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History, the podcast that takes you through the most interesting, important, and controversial events in the long life and history of the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholic Communion, centered on Rome. Hello, and welcome again. My name is Derek Taylor, your host for the podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, wherever you're listening, you can find us uh, hosted by Spotify. Uh, it's Spotify for podcasters. And you can find us at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, CastBox, pretty much anywhere else you, you listen. It is free to subscribe. You can follow us there. You can also follow us on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. I need to update some of the episodes to get them on there, but I also post the episodes there. You can look at an image while you listen. If Some people like doing that. I, I do that. I listen to stuff on YouTube all the time, so that's an option. And uh, you can find us on the web, uh, churchcontroversies.com. I have a website there. I need to, uh, probably a new blog post fairly soon. I've been, I haven't done that in a while, so some thoughts to share there. I, I provide links to other places where I publish articles in Crisis Magazine and other places. I uh, also find us on social media, Facebook page. Please go and like it. And on Twitter, you can find me. I tweet there when I get bored. It's not really, it's not really for much else. I also advertise, obviously, the podcast there. But thank you to everyone. Thank you to all our listeners. Um, I think the podcast is going to grow a little bit, which is good. That's what I wanted. So keep uh, keep spreading the word. I really appreciate it. And obviously appreciate all of our listeners. Uh, thank you very much for, for listening. And I'm glad everyone gets something out of it. It's very humbling to know uh, that you guys uh, appreciate uh, what I do here. And so that's very good as well. Oh, yes. Uh, one last thing. If Also, if you want to... Uh, Support the podcast financially. You can do that. You don't have to. But uh, I do have a Patreon account where you can do that. You can also listen through there. Some people do. It's weird. You should listen. I, I, I like the fact that if you can listen to all these different these different platforms because sometimes I listen on – I never listen to one – I listen to podcasts all the time too, and I listen to them in different, different ways. But I have a Patreon account, and which reminds me, I don't know if I, – I, last time I did a episode, I'll, I guess I'll do it both here. I've had two new, subs, two new patrons. Uh, let me thank that. Oh, maybe, maybe one. Oh, wait, two. We'll, we'll go with this. We definitely have one new patron, um, Michael Patrick Brannigan. Thank you, Michael, for subscribing. I'm very much humbled by your, by your uh, wanting to support the podcast. And I think last time was Spencer Hess. So we have two. Thank you, Spencer, as well, two new patrons. Uh, God bless you guys. And again, you don't have to. Yeah, it's all free, but I appreciate it. It does help me. It reaffirms what I'm doing, so that's good anyway. And um, so yeah, so we are back. Um, this is for this is dropping for subscribers first. You'll get the first crack at this. This is the um, fourth episode in our ongoing series, and I think there'll be a lot more. <laughs> um, one of the reasons why this one this is episode four of our series in Latinization, the Latinization of the Eastern Rites. And this is episode four, titled this "The Ottoman World, 1450 to 1800." going to focus on Rome's relationship with the Eastern Catholic churches or the Eastern churches that come into communion with it in the Ottoman world. Uh, and so this is covers the early modern period. We're going to talk mostly about the Maronite church, as we've already mentioned here, has a real close relationship with Rome even today, but also several other bodies that come into co uh, contact with Rome in this period. And just to start us out, remember last time, I, last episode was about Rome's, you know, the, the, the period in general, but also Rome's view of things, how it became sort of more jurisdictionally minded in terms of the Eastern churches. Uh, Rome also becomes just the city itself, I should mention, during the Reformation era, during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, much more cosmopolitan. It becomes a sort of um, a Renaissance city 
And you're going to have, one of the things that's going to uh, come out of this, you know, contact with these Eastern churches that we're going to see is the beginnings of what will come to be later on, somewhat derogatorily called uh, orient- Orientalist scholarship. I'll explain that in a moment. Also, the other thing to note about this is that Rome is a sort of multi-confessional city. There are Christians outside of communion Rome with Rome coming into Rome constantly during the 16th and 17th centuries for a variety of reasons, coming you know, to visit for pilgrimages, stuff like this. Uh, some coming to want to come into communion with Rome, so it's a it's a it's a you know multinational destination in the 16th century, and so Rome has its eyes, as you'll see, on the world. And we'll get to that in a moment. In this Reformation period, it's a new era for East and West in many ways. The other major thing to mention here, as I mentioned before, and I'm not going to go too much. I don't have time to do it, but the uh, the fact of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire is this massive Eurasian empire, stretches from Central Asia into the Balkans. Uh, it will, as we'll see here in a moment, will encompass the Middle East in this period, which is very important. And so it's important for Rome's relationship with these Eastern Christians. They have been there, you know, Franciscan and other orders in the Holy Land have been since the Middle Ages. They remain there, and they're usually a point of contact with the uh, Ottoman Empire. And the Ottomans are very crucial because they, the Pope, uh, not just the Pope, but Western powers generally, can't really have a lot of contact with these these Eastern Christians unless um, the Ottoman Sultan gives their say-so. And if you don't know how the Ottoman Empire treats religious minorities, it has what it's sometimes called the millet, millet system, where you have approved communities who have heads who have to be chosen by and approved by the sultan. And these are the people you will officially deal with. However, a lot of these Eastern Christians, sometimes who are getting in, trying to get in contact with Rome, they may, you know, if unless they are sort of approved by the uh, official head of these whatever communities that have been approved by the sultan can sometimes suffer under those those regimes. So these things are key, uh, important to keep in mind when we talk about this stuff here. And pretty much all the Christian groups I'll talk about, with well, one exception in this period, um, there's one big exception that's outside of, I believe outside of, it definitely is outside of the, the Ottoman remit, but it's close enough, I'm throwing them in here for reasons that become apparent, uh, has to deal with this system <clears throat> in the Ottoman Empire. The other major thing, just to recapitulate what I talked about last time, is the effect of the Reformation on Rome. And as I mentioned at the outset here, Rome has a very jurisdictional outlook. One of the things that the Reformation did was make Rome really concerned about its jurisdiction, about getting proper submission from patriarchs, from bishops to Rome's authority, and this will shape the outlook of what sometimes secular scholars, by the way, will call global Catholicism. They see this as a, and it is, Rome has a sort of global vision which is shaped by this, <clears throat> this idea of Rome as this big legal body with the, with the Pope as its head. And it will shape their view, it will give them a counter-Reformation view of these Eastern churches. And one of the major things you're going to see throughout this period is Almost more than the stuff where, I'll try to talk about this as much as possible because I know it's what interests you, is the, the Latinization of customs. Really the big thing is the Latinization of authority, um, wanting to have that jurisdictional relationship with these Eastern Christians to confirm that. <clears throat> One other thing, and I'll try to emphasize this more in this, this, uh, this episode, is the perspective of Eastern Christians. And the thing to note about all this is, again, sometimes, you know, we... We properly decry things like Latinization. That's why I'm doing the, uh, the series. But you really shouldn't see this as a as a, a sort of you know colonized versus colonizer thing, 
with Rome and these Eastern churches. They're not, and a lot of times, passive actors in this, as you're going to see. Above all, with the Maronites, they are definitely have their own agency. They definitely initiate a lot of things with Rome. As you're going to see, they have their own. It's not right to call it an agenda. They have their own interest, and they're going there for their reasons. And in the case of the Maronites, we'll get the Maronites in a second, but they sometimes get what they want out of Rome. Um, whether or not you know Eastern Orthodox Christians think this is a good deal is a different story for ecumenical purposes, but a lot of times this actually worked. Sometimes, of course, and we'll see one major episode here in this, this, uh, in this installment did not, and things went very badly. But it's a little more complicated. But you do have, and I think that's I'll, I'll, that's I'll probably go with this, we have the first instances. You know, I did the whole episode on the Middle Ages. I didn't, wasn't sure if you could call it Latinization. This is full-blown Latinization. Does happen. Does happen with several of these to varying degrees. But um, only one in the place that you think of this sort of, you know, you know the, the traditional criticism of Rome. It sort of imposes things willy-nilly on, on uh, Eastern Christians. So let's get started and talk about the backdrop here. And I think, you know, I titled it 1450 because really what happens with Rome is that uh, because of the Council of Florence Ferrara, because it involved the, uh, the Church of Constantinople, they made overtures and did actually sign statements of communion with several Eastern Catholic churches, um, obviously the, the Greeks, but also other different uh, bodies, um, the Armenians, the Coptic Church from Egypt, but few of these churches remained in communion very long after this. However, they also came into contact with the Maronites even before this. If you recall, they had the contact around the, the Crusades. They'd been closely allied with the Crusaders. Well, when the last Crusader kingdom was conquered by the Memluk um, dynasty of Egypt in 1291, basically Roman and Maronites fell out of contact for several centuries. The first contact we made again by the Maronites in 1405, which is a significant date, by the way, if you don't know, the Ottomans were already a power by 1400, but they got invaded in the early 15th century by Timur the uh, Timur Lang, Timur Ilang, or Timur the Timur Tamerlane in the west, it was a Turkish conqueror who sort of disrupted their their empire for several decades because of that. May have something to do with that. But then again, after the Council of Florence. And so what happens is in the 1440s, Rome will send representatives to the Holy uh, to the Maronites. In particular, they'll start sending the Franciscans who were already in the Holy Land to make contact with the Maronites, and they will reestablish contact with them. Now, in this this contact here, you have uh, Rome. Apparently, at this early date, their hope was that the uh, Maronites would become partners in converting the peoples of the Middle East, presumably. The, uh, the Orthodox, who they saw as schismatics, but also the non-Chalcedonian uh, Orthodox. You know what the non-Chalcedonian Orthodox are? Those are more or less Orthodox Christians who deny or who did not sign on to the doctrines of the Council of Chalcedon. This is the 4th century um, Christological council that defined Christ as having two natures. He was one person but had two natures. They deny this. And in fact, some of these... Um, some of these peoples are fairly prominent in the Middle East. Well, today they still exist, obviously. Uh, sometimes they're called Jacobites, the Syriac version of these non-Chalcedonian peoples. And in the 15th century, there was a growing influence of these, these non-Chalcedonian Christians in, uh, in Lebanon, where um, Maronites are, are stationed, where their homeland is. 
And so one of the things you had uh, in the background of this is the Maronites, and the, by the Maronites, you know, initiated this initially, the Maronite patriarchs um, sought confirmation of their patriarchal status from Rome. Why? Because they're, they're in, you know, they're in sort of competition with these other, other Eastern Christian communities. The Syrian Orthodox, who are actually Orthodox, who accept Chalcedon, the ones who don't. So they want Rome's authority for that purpose. They want that imprimatur that they get from them. And we have a lot of interesting things from this period, actually, I didn't know about before I did, this, did the research for this. One Franciscan that was sent to Jerusalem in the 1440s, who remained for a long time, for well over a decade, uh, was a, a Flemish uh, Franciscan named Griffin, who went there and, and noted the similarities between the Maronites and uh, Latin practice. Uh, there were some differences, and we'll get to this in a moment, but he urged the Maronites to seek closer ties with Rome, and you begin to have, I think, in the 1450s, uh, maybe 1460s, uh, Maronites uh, going to Rome and studying there, studying theology there. We know this because in the 1470s, by the time Griffin is back in Rome, he sends three Maronites who have been studying in various colleges, we don't know exactly which ones, in Rome back to Mount Lebanon to bolster Maronite ties with Rome. Now, I mentioned, you know, one of the things they wanted to do, these Maronites, was study and learn there. Why? Partly because they could oppose these other groups who were, you know, trying to gain influence in that area. And one of these, um, one of these Maronites who was sent back in the 1470s, who remained, who did this for several decades, and I'm about to butcher this name, by the way. I apologize if there are any <laughs> Eastern Christians listening to this, um, that I'm butchering names here. Um, uh, please forgive me. It's, uh, I blame it on white supremacy, right? <laughs> anyway, um, one of these was a religious, I don't I never, never got his actual, I don't know if he was a Franciscan, but he was a religious of some sort, named uh, Gabriel Ibn, uh, um, let me pronounce this, Gabriel Ibn al-Kila'i, uh, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, Gabriel Ibn al-Kila'i, who spent the next three decades, I think, trying to shore up Maronite belief, trying to keep them on the side of Rome and Chalcedonian Orthodoxy against these, these Jacobites. Uh, and one of his aims was to dispute, apparently, with non-Chalcedonian Christians in the area. We actually have a letter where he complains about no one wanting to dispute with him. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about him, but we do know he produced a number of works meant to do this. And we also know he was extremely learned. Um, one of his, the most important things he wrote was, a, and it's not very well known because it's only in manuscript form, was a, 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 a work called An Exposition of the Faith that was meant for his uh, Maronite brethren back in, in, um, in Mount Lebanon, which is not only steeped in Eastern theology, you know, patriar in the patriarchs of the Eastern Church, the Eastern Fathers, but also Latin theology. I mean, detailed, like he knows Thomas Aquinas, he knows Franciscan theology very well. He also, it's dotted with references to classical authors like Cicero and Seneca. He also produces poetry uh, designed to appeal to his people as well. Uh, and so you have all these works produced by this very learned person. And this begins a long relationship to, that resists to this day, actually, between Maronites coming to Rome, but it'll be um, um, to study there, but also um, the Maronites becoming the sort of emissaries of Rome in the Middle East. They all become go-betweens uh, for them and the other Eastern Christians from this period, actually not from this period, from the 16th century. The reason why is you have, um, and I said this because you have this you know, constant back and forth, despite all this, you have another Maronite embassy by the Maronite Patriarch in 1516 go to Rome, and um, for the purpose of getting, um, proclaiming the Maronite patriarch's adherence to Rome and getting Rome to confirm that, right? This is, again, one of the things 
these patriarchs wanted was Rome's authority, right? And again, we tend to think of, again, that Western idea of Western mentality, oh, Western imposed on the East. But remember, Rome's an ancient sea. It goes back to the ancient world. It has a cachet that they had their own purposes in seeking out his, his imprimatur. So this is the time of 1516, if you don't know, is the pontificate of Leo X. Leo the X was the, uh, the pontiff, the pope, who was pope when uh, the Revolu- Re- Reformation broke out. He's also a Medici pope. And I mentioned all this because he, uh, he's also the uh, pope who was, at this time, in 15, um, by 1517, 1616, when they get there, uh, his predecessor, Julius II, uh, had started the Fifth Lateran Council. It's still going on. So the Maronites came to the council to announce their you know, adhesion to Rome. And Leo X rejoiced at this, apparently in a letter calling them, quote, a rose among thorns. However, he also admitted that he had never heard of the Maronites. <laughs> Uh, which is, again, pretty interesting. It's only a few decades before they've been sending embassies to, to Le- Mount Lebanon. But he did show, he did confirm the patriarch in his office. But what this shows is, and this is what's going to change because the Maronites seek out Rome, is just the lack of knowledge Rome had about Eastern Christians and the Middle East in particular. This changes because of the Maronites. They will come to Rome and as you'll see, they're going to teach them, um, well, among other things, lots of these Eastern uh, languages uh, they need to know, and that actually begins, as we'll see in a moment, Western scholarship on this. And so you have this new era beginning, and begins after 1516 because of that event, but also because of another event in 1516, which is the conquest of the Middle East by the Ottoman Empire. In 1516 and 1517, the Ottoman Emperor, leave it Selim the first, maybe Selim the second, I don't know which one, I don't have my notes for some reason, conquers the Middle East, that includes Palestine, that includes Lebanon. So the Maronites and other Eastern Christians come under the control of uh, the Ottoman Empire. And in fact, maybe for this reason, I don't know, maybe because the Reformation's already starting, after the Fifth Lateran Council, from about 1522 onward for another 10 years, correspondence between Rome and the Maronites ends. And it's only reinitiated in the 1530s by uh, the Maronite patriarch in 1531. Again, he's seeking, again, confirmation, the new patriarch, seeking confirmation of his, of his status, of his role by Rome. And Rome doesn't respond for about a decade. <clears throat> Not until, I want to say 15, I don't have the exact date, it's 1540s, that Pope Paul III responds to him. And when he does, there's a marked shift. Uh, whereas last time they came and appealed to Leo, he said, yeah, sure, I don't know who you guys are, but I'm going to confirm you. All of a sudden, Paul III responds to the letter he received by sending a letter back, demanding greater fidelity to Roman customs, liturgical customs, fasting customs. And these seem to be driven by the Reformation. We're in the 1540s. <clears throat> by the 1540s, pretty much everyone knew because again, for the first couple of decades after 1517, most people in Europe thought this would this would be patched up, right? By the 1540s, people have gotten the idea this is probably going to be permanent, and so Rome is now very much on guard about this, and so you have this insistence. You'll see this with every other group after this that they need to get a, a confession of faith first, or they need to you know confirm their customs are in line with Rome's first. Uh, marks a change. Another change is that. You have this, um, you have Maronite clergy coming to Rome, uh, particularly, it began with the embassy to Louis XVI. It becomes, it becomes um, permanent in the 1540s, is you will have Maronite clergy who begin teaching Europeans Arabic 
and Syriac and other languages. And it's th this leads to the establishment of study of these languages in, in Western universities for the first time. The beginnings of the study of these things is directly related to, you know, their relationship with this Eastern Church, especially the uh, Eastern Church, but Maronites especially. <clears throat> and in fact, they, were, they had so much business in Rome, they sought out and received uh, from Rome an official cardinal protector. A cardinal protector is just a name for a, a cardinal who's designated to present the, you know, whatever cases that a, a particular body or church presents to the Roman Curia in the 1540s, and, uh, 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 again, to handle their business for them, basically, be an inter, uh, uh, interlocutor in them and the, and the curial bureaucracy. And um, they were given one, a guy named Marcello Servini, a cardinal in the 1540s and 1550s, who apparently took a really keen interest in uh, the Maronites, and especially the uh, study of Maronite history. And the reason why is very simple. Um, both he and a lot of people in Rome who were intellectually inclined began to see the history of the Eastern churches as a source for controversies with Protestants. They wanted to prove the antiquity of Roman claims to authority by appealing to the history of these Eastern churches. And of course, the Maronites were more than happy to oblige. They believed that already. Again, this goes back to the Crusades at least, right? They, they thought they'd never broken communion with Rome. And at the same time, you have the patriarch of the Maronites, and all of them basically do this, they encourage Maronites to go study Latin theology in Rome. So there is this give and take here, even though they're both coming at this with their own, you know, their own uh, interest at hand. And um, even before the Council of Trent, the Council of Trent meets uh, in 1545, between 1545 and 1563, you have this, this uh, relationship developing even before Trent wraps up, the Holy See begins to pressure the Maronite patriarchs um, to adopt the Roman form of the sacraments. This would be a consistent theme until the 1730s, to officially adopt certain forms of the Roman uh, liturgical administration of these sacraments. Um, and particularly by, uh, by the later 16th century, you have one pa uh, series of patriarchs from the, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, the Al-Reizi family. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation. Al-Reizi, R-E-E-Z-E-E. -E -E. Again, uh, it's all white supremacy. <laughs> uh, sorry, that's a bad joke, but whatever. Um, and uh, these patriarchs, beginning with, in the 1570s with Michael Al-Reizi, Hope that's hope that's right. Um, they will begin to. He comes patriarch, sends to Rome for confirmation. Gregory the Thirteenth, the Pope at the time, responds with a list of demands for the Maronites, and so they send papal embassies to Mount Lebanon, uh, papal legates in 1580, 1596, 1598, Gregory XIII did something very important for the future. He opened a college for Maronite students in Rome, which I'm, I assume still exists. I don't know if it was folded into a more general one for Eastern Eastern Rite Catholics. I don't know. Um, from, I'll find it out next time. Whatever. Um, and, and, uh, and this basically established a mechanism for Maronites who wanted to study there from the Middle East, which, of course, on the one hand, they get that they get the benefit of Western learning, you know, um, we'll see in a moment other Eastern Christians came wanting to use uh, Rome's printing presses. So you get that, but also, of course, this is a chance for Rome to influence these Maronite students uh, in terms of Latin customs and things like this. And so by the, by the time you get the next 
papal delegation going to Lebanon, them holding a synod there, which they do in 1596, they bring with them 200 copies of a Latinized missal. And by Latinized, I don't mean they imposed the Latin language on them. They didn't. Uh, certain prayers are, are sort of in there that are similar or basically translations of Latin, ones from the Latin Missal. And a few other things. There are some other insistences that I don't think go over well at the time or you don't get approved by this. Uh, and so, uh, and this Missal was imposed by this synod in Lebanon in 1596, which is the one more or less they used to the late 20th century, if I'm not mistaken, or at least versions of it. Even though this synod, by the way, was never officially approved by Rome and apparently didn't do a whole lot in terms of trying to impose it on Maronite Christians, uh, the synod they held, they held another one in 1598, which largely repeated these prescriptions, but also did not send its acts to Rome for confirmation. Why do I mention all that, by the way? Because, again, they're supposed to be doing that, so we're not sure, okay, how official, not how official it was, but, again, how much is this actually being put into practice? And the answer is probably not universally. Uh, Maronites don't have nearly as Maronite patriarch doesn't have nearly kind of control over his flock that the Bishop of Rome does. Um, one thing they do in the early seventh by the early 17th century, however, the Maronite patriarch does manage to impose the Gregorian calendar, uh, at least in Lebanon. There are, but not there are actually Maronites on the island of Cyprus. The, they reject that there, but they do impose the modern you know Western calendar there as well. So you do have the beginnings of this by the end of the 16th century. And this is an imposition, right? Although it's done with the, with the, the, uh, the support of these Maronite patriarchs, who again, they're getting what they want out of this. They want their authority buttressed. Uh, and so you do have some of this. I wouldn't overdo it, not too much yet. It's not total, but you have this thing, again, these list of demands really go back to the Middle Ages, but they're there. Uh, and so you have this process gaining a pace as they, the Maronites especially become more and more tied into Rome as a sort of system of ecclesial government. And as uh, in addition to the Maronites, of course, as mentioned before, there are other Eastern Christians in Rome in this time period. Rome begins to have contacts with, well, I'll go through them here, three main groups besides the Maronites. There are others. One of them we'll get to in another episode. But in terms of the Ottoman uh, Eastern Christians, uh, first and foremost, Ethiopian Coptic Christians uh, from Ethiopia begin reaching Rome. They send an embassy, again, in 1404. They also sent an embassy during the Council of Florence, but no reunion resulted. But it appears, and they made claims, their, their ambassadors did at Florence, that they, uh, I think legitimately, they'd never broken formally communion with Rome. Uh, they'd never adopted, apparently, the, um, uh, it's called the Monophysite Doctrine. That's the heresy was condemned by the Council of Chalcedon. But they did have a, a Christology that slightly differs from the Latins. We know this because when, well, we'll look at in a moment, when they began to examine their ideas when they came to Rome, they, the Roman authorities began to have some problems with them. But you began to have, by the 16th century, a number of, you know, several dozen Ethiopian Coptic pilgrims coming to Rome as part of their pilgrimage tour, uh, places in Europe, visiting the tombs of Peter, St. Peter, and St. Paul. And so, so it had so many, by the end of the 15th century, they had already established a hostel centered on the Church of San Stefano, which is close by to the Vatican. <clears throat> so much so that by, by 1548, Pope Paul III actually formally granted use of the church to Ethiopian pilgrims. And you begin to have, again, it's the same man who's behind us. It's Marcello Cervini, who's that cardinal, who's the uh, patron of the Maronites, also interested in the history of the Ethiopian church. And so he begins to, um, he makes contact with an Ethiopian named Tasfa Seon. I think I'm pronouncing that the right way. 
um, who came to Rome in the 1530s. They had a, a military, um, there was a war Ethiopia was fighting in the 1530s. He was looking for help. Uh, but when he came, um, he entered communion with Rome, and he was sort of the point man for uh, Servini and other clerics who wanted to learn more about these people. So in 1549, I'm going to butcher this name again, they produced, uh, actually they printed a uh, Gaez translation of the New Testament. Gaez, 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 not Gaez. <laughs> no, <laughs> Gaez, Gaez. Uh, I don't know how you pronounce it exactly, but that's the liturgical language of the Ethiopian uh, church, Orthodox church, uh, ancient Ethiopian language. Um, New Testament printed in that language in 1549. And in 1552, a grammar in that language was printed as well. And again, for the same reason, Servini wanted to know more about this Eastern church, trying to learn if it could, its history could buttress Roman claims. Um, he actually uh, had a, uh, Servini, uh, actually, uh, Marcello Servini actually had a, a Latin translation of the Ethiopian liturgy made in 1547. Um, <clears throat> but after several years, the interest of Servini and others seems to have cooled. Why? Because they began to be suspicious of its orthodoxy for a variety of reasons that seemed like, even though they weren't technically monophysite, didn't seem like they embraced the very clear distinction of two natures, which is a big thing. Hugely important, obviously. So they had questions about that. But also, some of the claims that this guy, Tasfasion, seemed to make were kind of sketchy. For example, he produced um, documents of a series of canons from the First Council of Nicaea, remember 325, that were in Gaez, the Ethiopian language, and he claimed that these were the originals, that they had originally been written in this language, which, of course, made Roman scholars sit up. But apparently when they began to, to, um, to examine the, the text, they found they probably weren't originals, and they began to sort of be suspicious of some of the claims they were making. Um, but, as we'll see in a moment, this didn't end Latin interest in wanting to bring the Ethiopian church into communion with Rome. We'll come to that in a moment. You also had, coming to Rome in the 16th century, Jacobite Christians. Yes, some of those non-Chalcedonian Christians we mentioned, Syriac Christians who are non-Chalcedonian, came to uh, Rome. Uh, in fact, uh, following the Council of Florence, several of these, these non-Chalcedonian bishops had come into communion with Rome. However, they were in the Middle East, and um, they couldn't keep their sees because the, once they came into communion with Rome, the, the Syrian Orthodox Church wouldn't have anything to do with them and they would have to come under the jurisdiction of either a Latin bishop or a Maronite bishop. And they eventually lost their, their distinctive customs over time because of that. Nevertheless, um, they came into contact with Rome to the Jacobites uh, in 1549 again. A deacon makes his way there as an emissary from the Jacobite patriarch, where he apparently makes his living, again, teaching Syriac to, to European scholars, both in Rome but also in Germany, apparently. And um, what happens is the patriarch, again, like the Maronite patriarch, wanted his con confirmation of his status as patriarch by Rome. However, in 1549, the pope at the time, Julius III, withheld it, first wanting to get a profession of faith from him uh, first. So the, the uh, Jacobite patriarch sends the documents back um, with a profession of faith. He also, by the way, sends a request for, um, for, the, uh, for Rome to print some Syriac literature uh, in order to preserve it. Again, they're seeking out Rome for their own reasons. They want to preserve some of their heritage this way. Um, in fact, his uh, profession of faith was came back 
seemed to seem to omit any mention of uh, the Council of Chalcedon, Chalcedon, and didn't seem to be terribly orthodox according to what Rome's standards were at the time. But Julius III apparently accepted anyway, so he came into communion with Rome. On the other hand, the deacon I mentioned before, um, they insisted he be reordained, which apparently they did a lot. I think I think Tosfasion was a, a, a priest as well. He was reordained. Some of these Eastern Christians agreed. Uh, he didn't, this Jacobite deacon. He left the city for several decades. He came back, though, later on to teach Syriac in a Roman college. So it's a very interesting push-pull here in terms of what Rome's demanding, what these people are going to do. And again, it is not all, you know, Rome whack people over the head with a stick and make them, you know, embrace Latin customs. And then finally, there was a visit from an, uh, an Armenian patriarch, Stephanos V, in 1548. <clears throat> To Rome, we mentioned in the earlier podcast how the Armenian, Armenian church has had, has been in communion with Rome several times throughout its history, has some more closer ties because of the Crusades with the Church of Rome. And this patriarch, again, came looking for confirmation of his status as patriarch. There's a theme here. And in 1549, he made submission and was confirmed. Uh, he actually attended the funeral of Paul III in 1550, but... Um, he, uh, and when he went back home, he went back through Poland and to get to Armenia, and he died on the way there. So again, you have all these different peoples looking to Rome for certain things in the 16th century, and Rome seeking also to advance its interest, and this is where the Latinization comes from. Now, having said all that, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't consider myself, I don't consider what I do apologetics. I point out that Rome isn't always sort of clamping down on people. However, doesn't mean there aren't episodes that are really bad in this history. The one episode in this, well, not the one episode, but the, one, of the, one of the few episodes in this period that is, it fits the sort of image of bad Rome imposing things on an uh, Eastern church, um, happens in Ethiopia. It happens in the late 16th, early 17th century. I mentioned before, they've been sort of hanky about their orthodoxy. Nonetheless, um, because you had uh, mentioned Tasfa uh, Seon, the Ethiopian uh, um, priest, had come to Rome seeking military aid. Well, the Portuguese provided military assistance uh, to the Ethiopians between 1529 and 1543. And in 1557, a group of Jesuits arrived there, including a bishop and five priests. And they came there, and for reasons I, I couldn't quite find out the exact reasons, they were almost immediately banished by the Ethiopian court. I don't know how they offended them. I assume they offended them because they tried to impose Latin customs on them or, uh, or things of that nature. And they were banished from the court, and they were only allowed to minister to the Portuguese in Ethiopia, which they did. They remained there, uh, all of them, till, their, till the end of their lives. The last of them died in 1597. That's, that's 40 years. It's a long time. <clears throat> However, um, the, the Jesuits, being the enterprising order that they are and closely aligned with the kind of Reformation, um, sent more people back. They sent uh, Father Pedro Paez in 1603, who goes to Ethiopia. <clears throat> and there, he's welcomed at court. And in fact, the emperor there is interested in the Latin rite, actually asks him to celebrate a Latin rite before him. He actually, Paez, I mentioned this this reason, he actually had to bug him to you know, pester Paez to get him to do it. I guess he didn't want to be seen as imposing on them. But eventually he did uh, at the court, but in the Latin rite, but with the reading of the gospel read in Gaez. And slowly, Father Paez tried to reconcile the different theological differences between the Ethiopians and the Latins and, um, and tried to sort of find ways of, of, of um, you know, 
either sharing out things in their practice, in their liturgy, in other places where uh, it was um, not compatible with with Chalcedonian Orthodoxy or uh, just smoothing things over. And he apparently had some success. He was there for almost 20 years. And what he did was in areas where, because there were parts of Ethiopia, it's officially a Christian country, has been since antiquity, Ethiopia. But... um, the areas that were dominant, predominantly Christian, they, he would celebrate Mass, and the Jesuits would, in a slightly modified Gaez Missal, uh, in their language, but with some of, like, most of the anaphoras taken out. Uh, anaphora, if you know what that is, anaphora is a prayer, uh, Eucharistic prayer, um, and they reduced those to two. Also, with some things excised out, again, because they were seen to be maybe ambiguous or not compatible with Chalcedonian or- Orthodoxy. On the other hand, wherever else they went that was not predominantly Christian, they would celebrate in the Latin rite. So they were trying to reconcile things. Apparently he was doing a decent job. He dies in 1622. But, unfortunately, uh, three years later, the um, Jesuits send, actually the Pope sends, uh, a, um, a new Jesuit uh, leader there, and actually uh, basically uh, consecrate him, him as patriarch of the Ethiopians, a guy named Alfonso Mendes, another Portuguese. And he arrives in 1625 and immediately begins to try to, in the most um, heavy-handed way, Latinize the Ethiopians. Among other things, uh, he tried to impose the Latin rite on Ethiopian monasteries and on priests. <clears throat> the emperor, whose name was Sesion, I think is how you pronounce the name, Susenos, excuse me, Emperor Susenos, the Ethiopian emperor, who became Catholic in 1622 uh, and made a profession of submission to Rome in 1626, making it the state religion, um, asked that his people be allowed to celebrate in their traditional rite. Mendes refused. And um, when the emperor issued an edict allowing this, uh, his subjects to do this in 1631, uh, Mendes demanded its repeal. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> oh, my apologies. Um, such was the rancor this caused that actual fighting broke out and it turned into a civil war between the Emperor Susenos, who sided with the Patriarch, <clears throat> and his son, who sided with the indigenous Ethiopian church. And went on for about a year and about 8,000 people lost their lives. And after one battle where his own troops apparently did, actually did horrible things to his own people, the Emperor, who was distressed by this, uh, to get the fighting over with, declared religious freedom for all the subjects, and then expelled both Mendes and the Jesuits for good in 1634. So this is about about as a clear an instance of of this Latinization as you can find. The affair cements the idea that the Latin rite was a foreign imposition on the Ethiopians, and as a result, only two more attempts are made by Rome to reach out to them in the early modern era in 1644. A Carmelite friar was sent to Ethiopia, but died in Naples on the way there. And then in 1788, Rome consecrated a bishop uh, to send to Ethiopia, who took an oath that when he got there, he would retain the gay as right. But uh, he spent most of his eight years in, uh, in northern Ethiopia on the run, because the Coptic patriarch in Egypt had issued a death sentence against him, I presume because of what happened in, 16, <laughs> in the 1630s. And so, fearing to die without the sacraments, he left uh, Ethiopia and died in Egypt. Uh, he left e- Ethiopia in 1797 and died in Egypt in 1801. 
and not until the 1830s would Rome try again. So this is, of course, uh, this is uh, one of these periods where you have to say, yes, Rome screwed up royally. This is uh, the Latinization. Uh, it's not a boogeyman. It did happen, and this is one of these. This is actually the second, by the way. I'll have a whole other episode on, um, as you'll see, where we go over another major episode. This is one of the two uh, major ones in the early modern period. And so um, to finish up here, talking about the Levant in the latter half of this period, about 1600 to 1800, <clears throat> things begin to shift a little bit in, the, in this period. Why? Um, partly because it becomes a little easier to send missionaries to the Middle East. Um, why? Because the Ottoman Empire begins to weaken um, in the latter part of the 17th century. If you don't know this history, it's really a threat, and, and Western powers are really afraid of them. It begins to change with the Siege of Vienna in 1683. It's the last time the Ottomans make a, a play to try to take Vienna. They're repulsed and turned away. Uh, at major battles, they're defeated in, uh, in the 1680s, and then 1697, they're decisively defeated by the Austrians. And in 1699, they're forced to sign a treaty. And this is momentous, because if you don't know, the Ottomans before this had never bothered to send an ambassador to any, any European country. Why? Because they always beat them in war. Uh, the Battle of Lepanto notwithstanding. They didn't bother. They saw other countries as beneath them, especially Christians. For the first time, they were forced to come to the negotiating table and sign a treaty. It means they're beginning to weaken. And so, Western countries have more influence there. It means it's easier for Rome to get missionaries in there. It means you have more Latinization. <laughs> Long story short. And in particular, of course, this is usually the story of, uh, this. I'll finish this up here, is the, uh, the Latinization of the Maronites. After the, uh, the late uh, early 16th century, when the Gregorian calendar was imposed, the 17th century was relatively quiet. Uh, another synod was held in 1644 in Mount Lebanon, which dealt with some sacramental questions, but didn't do a whole lot else from what I can tell. Uh, only two things probably major changed by the beginning of the 18th century is that, um, well, one of the things that happened is that in the Middle East, as I mentioned before, more Latin missions were being est established. But also there was the founding of two Maronite religious orders, um, two Antonine orders, the Order of St. Anthony in 1700 and the Order of St. Esaias in 1704. And this is, this is pretty clearly an, an example of, and again, it's, it's, it's voluntary. I mean, this is the patriarch doing this, but uh, patriarch, oh boy, Maronite patriarch, Stefan uh, Al-Duhahi, uh, Al-Duhahi, uh, I think I'm pronouncing that the right way. Um, well, Patriarch Stefan uh, introduces the Roman congregation system to organize the various disparate, uh, sort of spread out monastic communities in Lebanon. And he has uh, statutes for these, these congregations approved by Clement XIII in 1732. Why is this Latinization? Because uh, traditionally speaking, Eastern monastic houses don't have that sort of organization. They don't have you know, constitutions like that. They don't, they don't take, you know, vows, right? Vows, like, are sort of a legal thing, and they don't do it. All that happened before this for them was they would receive the habit and they entered the monastery, and a special rite would be celebrated, you know, sort of inducting them in there, and that's it. Um, so this is, a, this is a sort of Latinization. And I should mention, both of these Antonine orders still exist today, although the male branches ceased to be monastic orders back in the 1950s. But the real definitive turn is usually dated to 1736, when uh, it's sometimes called the Synod of Mount Lebanon. You had um, you already had this happening slowly over time. This is the big thing. It's not like it's a lot of events, but you know, a Maronite priest, uh, for example, 
in the 17, uh, early 1700s, in the early 1720s, a priest translated the canons of Trent uh, into um, 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 and uh, added them to the various canons of, of the Maronite councils held in the 1590s. So you had documentation from Rome being translated into um, Arabic for Maronites, and so you're having closer and closer ties, ecclesially speaking, between uh, Roman and the Maronites, and um, culminating in uh, the Synod of Mount Lebanon of 1736, which basically ratified all the liturgical and canonical um, adoption of Latin customs Rome had been asking for for several centuries, things like the use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist, um, as well as the confirmation of both Latin and Syriac forms of baptism, confirmation, and last rites, but with only the Latin form of absolution being allowed. I should note, by the way, that these types of things, i give some examples there, for the most part they were not adopted uniformly or universally, and a lot of times the impositions would be things like vestments, because you can kind of see, if you look at, I couldn't find anything on the internet necessarily, um, to, uh, I, couldn't, I looked around and tried to find you know, like a Maronite missile from the modern period, I couldn't find one. But they have one printed uh, on um, uh, the uh, uh, archive.org, actually has one from 1962, uh, a missile, a uh, Maronite missile. And you kind of see it has images of the way they're dressed. They pretty clearly have Latin vestments on. So things like that, not necessarily even uniformly, but they did manage to get it officially sort of um, entered into, you know, Maronite, um, you know, uh, canons and uh, and uh, legislation dealing with those sorts of things, hierarchy and religious orders. <clears throat> and there were several other synods held in the course of the 18th century, all of which, and I think the biggest thing from Rome's perspective is you see the papacy directly intervening to a lot of uh, in a lot of ways in the in the life of the Maronite Church. They're bre- they're firmly within the jurisdiction of Rome, which was the most important thing I think for Rome at this period for a lot of these Eastern churches. And one of the things, just to emphasize this, what makes all this possible is, I mentioned the waning of Ottoman power. And, you know, you had, you'd had from the 16th century, um, Rome printing things like, um, excuse me, um, Bibles and stuff in Arabic, trying to get these things, you know, into the Middle East. Um, Rome, I forgot to mention this, in 1622 sets up a... um, um, a department in the Vatican, the Propaganda de Fide, which is it's basically it's whatever handles missionary work. Uh, it's part of all this, and uh, Propaganda Fide um, they tend to see uh, you know Ottoman territory as mission territory, the objects being Eastern Orthodox Christians and Muslims, and uh, again it picked up picks up pretty much everywhere in the Middle East as a result of this, especially at the end of the 17th century. One other thing to note about this is it's partly, again, influenced by the Reformation. <clears throat> because from the late 16th century, you actually have Protestants printing books, Bibles, stuff like this, prayer books, in Arabic with the aim of converting Muslims and Eastern Christians to Protestantism. Uh, and you're going to get uh, interventions in the Middle East by powers above all the French. The French have had a long history with the Ottomans uh, in the 16th century. Uh, I believe it was Francis I made, a, uh, made actually a, a, an alliance with the Ottomans um, against the Habsburgs in the early 1520s. And so they have long-standing ties in the region. They have consuls in Istanbul. Um, they begin their own campaign of printing stuff in Arabic. 
1640, a Capuchin monk in Baghdad uh, published a book, uh, which I'm not going to pronounce the, the Arabic name of, called The Book of Christian Education, which was sponsored by Cardinal Richelieu of France, <clears throat> more or less the governor of France in the 1630s and 40s during the Thirty Years' War. And it was part of an attempt to reinforce uh, French influence the region. And the text is supposed to be this like history of theology and history of you know Christian history. It, it's all European history. It mentions European kings, makes no mention of the Ottomans whatsoever. Uh, and in the next year, 1641, there was a Maronite scholar who worked as a translator at the Propaganda de Fide in Rome, but he was in Paris, living in Paris in 1641, penned an Arabic work, um, which he dedicated to Cardinal Richelieu in which he called for the French to invade the Ottoman Empire and take over the Holy Land. And I mention all this because this is, again, one of the reasons why the Maronites are so, they become so aligned with Rome, is they, they're thinking about these sorts of things. And so were the French. The, uh, Richelieu had already concocted plans. He already had a plan for invading the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> Amazing, right? During the middle of the freaking Thirty Years' War, go invade the Ottoman Empire. It was never attempted. It would have been suicide. Um, but there were many attempts, um, or at least planned, or there was an idea there by European powers to go invade the Middle East. So this is partly what they're thinking of here. Um, and so this sort of you know, influences things that are going on in the region. I won't dwell too much on this or, or bore you with more, more details, but something to keep in mind. Because the last thing that happens, and I assume this happens um, only in the 18th century um, in the Middle East, is that in the, seven, in the 1700s you have... Um, several individual churches coming into communion with Rome, creating what we know as the Eastern, Eastern Catholic churches today. Again, the Maronites are different. They have a longer history. Um, I'll mention the Slavic churches in a later episode. This has already happened by this point. But the ones in the Middle East, uh, ones in you know, Eastern, you know, Eastern reaches that come into communion with Rome, happens in this period almost assuredly has to be because Ottoman influence is waning and they have more opportunity to do so. In 1742, you have an Armenian patriarch appointed by Rome. Um, they come into communion, the Armenian Catholic Church. He has to flee and go to Lebanon because he can't get there um, um, because he wasn't able to return to his, uh, to his, uh, to his home. This happens a lot. Uh, but that's the creation of the Armenian Catholic Church. 1782, um, a Syrian Catholic Church is established. There was actually one attempt before this in the 1660s. A Jacobite, I mean Syrian Catholic, is Syrian Orthodox but non-Chalcedonian. A Jacobite... Um, priest came into communion with Rome. He's, uh, he's made bishop in 1662, and he becomes patriarch. He reigns for 15 years, uh, not peacefully, but he reigns. He dies. Uh, his successor after 1677 is replaced by a Jacobite candidate who successfully appeals to the sultan, who then has him removed, and so he has to flee. Um, and so you have Catholics, you know, uh, fleeing for that. But... Um, they couldn't do anything about this because they were they didn't have Ottoman approval and the Syrian Orthodox uh, Jacobite uh, of Jacobite Christians um, sort of oppressed them. In 1782, a hundred years later, um, a Syrian Catholic bishop uh, is elected patriarch in um, in that region on the assurance that the rest of these bishops in the area will follow him into communion with Rome. And uh, they al almost all immediately renege on his promises, and so the bishop his name is Michael Jarwa. Uh, is forced to flee le to Lebanon. Again, uh, they flee to the Maronites because they're the sort of point men there. And uh, he, but it does establish there a small Syrian Catholic church which still exists. Probably the most important of these, by the way, at least for our purposes, the most clear Latinization that takes place, 
is that of the Melkite Church. And I mentioned them. The Melkites, remember last time, going back to the Middle Ages, this is the Sea of Antioch we're talking about. Um, they'd um, mentioned that they had been originally a Syriac rite and had been sort of changed to the Byzantine rite by the, by the Byzantine Empire. But there'd been a lot of contact with Rome uh, before, uh, since the Crusades. Between the 12th and 18th centuries, uh, something like 25 patriarchs of that sea had come into communion with Rome, but, however, without establishing any lasting union. And again, in the 17th century, once Catholic missionary uh, activity p- uh, picked up in Damascus, in Syria, especially because of French influence, um, this makes possible the creation of the Melkite Catholic Church. Because what happens here, and this is why if you're an Orthodox, this sounds really awful, so keep that in mind. Missionaries in Syria, uh, in Damascus, formed uh, a pro-Catholic party within the Patriarchate itself, splitting the Antiochian Church by the early 18th century. So there's a pro-Catholic party centered in Damascus and an anti-Catholic party in its rival city. In 1724, uh, the Orthodox Patriarch dies. You have these two rival camps. They both elect rival patriarchs, one Orthodox, one in communion with Rome. The Ottoman Sultan recognized the Patriarch that had been ordained by Constantinople and therefore sends the uh, Catholic Patriarch into exile who goes to Lebanon, uh, where the Maronites are. Um, and then finally, one, the last one, 1741, this is almost a little bit, uh, it dates to 1741, won't fully become a reality until the 1890s. Coptic uh, representatives from Egypt had ratified the Council of Florence, but nothing came of it. In the late 16th century, the Pope had appointed a vicar apostolic for the Copts in Egypt under Franciscan control. Again, the Franciscans were there you know, from the Middle Ages. And um, it also opened up the propaganda de fide to Egyptian students who came to study there. So again, there's this push-pull of you know, Rome you know, wanting to bring these, these churches into jurisdiction, but also opening up opportunities to them. And in 1741, the Coptic Patriarch of Jerusalem recognized papal primacy. I didn't get the reasons. I'm assuming he wanted his imprimatur because it would confirm his status. Uh, and the Pope appointed him as Patriarch of the, the, Catholic, of the Coptic, Coptic Christians in Egypt in communion with Rome. However, he was not allowed to set foot in Egypt, <laughs> presumably by the, 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 Coptic, uh, the Coptic church there. And so um, the 2,000 or so, there's about 2,000 cops at that point who were in communion with Rome, had to wait another 150 years for another patriarch to come. Uh, and so we come to the end of this episode. I mean, you see this within the Ottoman world, these efforts, these strenuous efforts by Rome to reach out to the Eastern churches, and, uh, you know, sometimes this is, this is a give and take. Sometimes, a lot of times it is Eastern patriarchs, you know, going to Rome um, for their own purposes. But, of course, it does also have the one real black mark in terms of the Ethiopian church. But you do have this very complex web of international relations between the two churches. And so it is a little bit more, co- it's more complicated than the sort of narrative I've been talking about. And I'll beat on that the whole time, but... Um, you see Rome trying to branch out because of the Reformation, sending missionaries across the world, and trying to reach out uh, to these Eastern churches to get them back into communion because it does see itself. It's reasserting its claims to be the universal head of all the churches, which has been challenged by the Protestants. And, um, and you do have some lasting ties. I think, I, think, I think for the most part, there's always problems, but I think the, the relationship between the Maronites and the, and the Latin church has been a good one. Um, not so, of course, with the Ethiopians and some of the other ones. But again, we can talk more about this going forward because it'll be, uh, as you get into the modern period, you will have, uh, of course, colonization because this is what other thing we've talked about here. 
is the uh, the interest of European powers, which, as you can imagine, is not always the same as Rome, even though they work together sometimes. And so it will bring some of that later on, which you might call, you know, colonialism. That's the other thing that we sometimes, you know, we... Uh, uh, when we talk about these these uh, issues, sometimes it's equated with colonialism. I hope, if anything, these these episodes prove it's not really about that. But sometimes, unfortunately, you get people uh, in the Roman Church who do that, uh, and it is a downside of all this. And so that is the uh, the that is it for this episode. Uh, the next one will probably be fairly short. It will be on the Church of the East, that is the Chal or the Chaldean Church in the Middle East. Um, we'll talk about that for the early modern period. That'll be the one, last one next time. Also be on the lookout for some content, new content, maybe some more re- review episodes on films, maybe a book. I'll get around to it. I'm retconning some stuff. Oh, maybe a new one for subscribers, for patrons, I mean. And then um, the next single episode, I know I've been promising the one on the, uh, the Pearson program. It's going to take a little while. I've got some reading to do. Um, it's coming. <laughs> I promise it's coming. Other things, interviews, I'm trying to nail people down, I promise. It's coming, it's coming. And then, uh, I mentioned the live stream. I may try that at some point, the live streams. We'll see how that goes. Um, things are coming. I'm busy with writing. That's the thing. Busy with uh, books I'm writing, stuff I'm writing. So I uh, apologize for that. But more content is coming, I promise, soon in the coming days. Uh, remember, again, uh, find us on the web, churchcontrafraser.com. Find us on social media, Facebook page, Twitter, at Controversies H. Uh, find us, uh, YouTube, YouTube channel, Controversies in Church History. Go subscribe. Subscriber, subscribers are going up there. It's good. I'm almost, almost to 600 subscribers. Need to go to 1,000 to monetize the thing. So very good. I'm really happy about it. And then, um, yes, and if you want to you want to become a patron, again, more happy that you're listening than anything else. But you can go to, you go to my Patreon account. Uh, but help continue to spread the word. If you like it, you know, I got uh, almost 100 episodes up on there. Uh, there'll be more coming, more shorter episodes, more fun stuff. So uh, it's not all going to be this heady. <laughs> but I know you guys like this, the, the, the deep dives I do. But more stuff is coming. More diversity of things are coming. So uh, please check out the channel. Uh, subscribe or follow on uh, Spotify or wherever you listen. So there's the end of that spiel. God bless you all. Thank you for all my listeners. Bless you. Uh, Have a wonderful day and take care and you'll be hearing from me soon. God bless.